Our children may be dismissed at this time for Children's Church. As they are leaving, you can join me in your scriptures in Philippians chapter 3. I, would ju I just want to say before I begin this morning, too, um, before the service begins, we gather in the back, a few of us that are leading worship, and we pray for what takes place here. And in a conversation we just had, it came up, there were some fool running around Hawaii in their underwear. And I just happened to be commenting further that this person was probably caught in their little pink bunny underwear. But I did not realize as I left my microphone on, so everybody out there heard that. So I want you to know I'm prone to say too much. Um, and this particular message, I had hoped to get through chapter 3. And instead, I'm going to get through three verses. So we'll get through two sections this morning. And then, Lord willing, we're going to finish up the chapter next Lord's Day. But Philippians chapter 3, if you would join me there. And I'll begin at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also... I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I have often told you, now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we do want this hour to be a time that worships Your good name, that worships Your Son, that worships the Spirit that brought us to new life in Christ. And so we ask that by that Spirit, you would take captive our hearts and minds this morning, that we might see your majesty, your glory, that you will drive us to set aside the things of the world and the distractions that are outside now, and to see what you have done for your people, what you are doing for your people, and what lies ahead for your people in the glory of your heaven, your home. Father, as believers this morning, we are rich with that inheritance. And so our response, our hearts, our minds, we want to be given to the things of Christ this morning. I ask that you would grant me the clarity of speech that I need, but I ask also that you would help all of us to have those ears, spiritual ears, that are attentive to your word. Direct and guide your church, sanctify your church this morning. Fill us with a passion for the lost and a passion for your holiness as well. Speak to us through your word this morning. In Christ we pray, amen. In our previous study of Philippians chapter 3, Paul, in that beautiful expression that we just read in verse 12, 13, and 14, was expressing to us, testifying to us, 
the testimony of Paul's priority in life. And he had formerly given us a testimony of what he was before Christ. And he's letting us know in this text before us that I've set those things beside. They're behind me now. And I'm stretching forward, taking hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. And I have no doubt that as Paul wrote those words, the Damascus Road experience came to mind. God's elective grace the sovereignty of God in drawing this man to himself. And there's no finer expression of the election of God than the testimony of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. I have no doubt when Paul references the upward call, he thinks again of Christ's call to him on that Damascus road. But what we read last time, two weeks ago, from Romans chapter 8, is that God had a purpose for calling Paul and for every believer we are very familiar with Romans 8:28. God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. But sometimes we leave out that 29th verse, which reminds us that God predestined that we should be born again so that we would conform to the image of Christ. And that is the great priority of the gospel. We tend to reduce the gospel to that which gets us out of hell and gets us into heaven, but on the heart and mind of God, there's a greater priority. And that is to make sinners conform to the image of Christ. And Paul understood that. And we see the details of that testimony coming out here in Philippians chapter 3. And he's telling the church, this is what I'm impassioned about. This is why Christ has called me to conform me to the image of the Son of God. And therefore, I'm setting everything else aside. And I'm reaching forward, straining every muscle, exerting myself to take hold of the goal, the prize, the upward call, which is found in Christ Jesus. And what is that goal? It is Christ-likeness. This is what Paul is reaching for. And it's not just his own personal testimony, but you understand that in verse 15, he calls the whole church to have this same attitude. We're all to think like this. This is to be our priority. This morning, Paul picks up this same theme in verse 17. And this is where we're going to begin our worship study this morning. And I've titled this particular series, if you will, Walking Home. And you can see why from the text. Paul identifies this walk of the believers and he's calling all of the church to join him, to stand with him as they're moving forward to that eternal glory. And we're going to talk about that glory next week in verse 20 and 21. But I did not want to gloss over the importance of what Paul is describing here in these first three verses, 17, 18, and 19, as he describes for us the walk of the believer, the walk that we're not to be uh, involved in, and where that walk is going to take us to glory. So I begin this morning in verse 17, join in walking with the saints of God. Our text builds upon this progressive sanctification that Paul has just identified in verses 12, 13, and 14. It's a journey that is bringing all of the church closer into the image of Christ. And that's why at the beginning of this letter, Paul says, God is doing this work in me and I know he's going to perfect it. I have absolute confidence 
that he's going to complete what he has started in me until the day of Christ Jesus. He's, of course, talking about progressive sanctification. And this is what he's opening up to the church here in his own personal testimony and then telling the church, you all must be part of this. And I want to emphasize here at the beginning, in verse 17, the union of the church, the unity of the church. And we've seen this mark of unity as Paul has been calling throughout this letter the church to be joined together all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 27. If you look at those words again, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, unity. Paul is passionate about the unity of the church. And the unity of the fellowship here is vividly proclaimed throughout chapter 2 and into chapter 3, bringing us up here to verse 17, where Paul again says to the church, I'm walking this way, I'm pressing forward to the prize, I want you there with me. You follow my example and observe those who are with me on this journey as well. Observe them to the extent that you're following with them also. In other words, brothers and sisters this morning, we are to be together on this journey of progressive sanctification. I say that at the beginning because it is our inclination to think my progressive sanctification is my own effort, my own work. I will attend to my own growth in Christ. Thank you just the same. Paul is saying it doesn't work like that. That is not discipleship. And at the very heart of this conversation, Paul is teaching us the doctrine of discipleship. That we are joined together in growing towards that Christ-likeness, which is the priority of God in the gospel itself. In chapter 1 and verse 27, notice the position. Standing firm in one spirit. He envisions the church standing together in unity. In chapter 3 and verse 13, two weeks ago when we looked at that text, he says, I'm reaching forward and it pictures us running. And he says, let us. In other words, we're joined together running. There's the position. We're running together, standing in one spirit, running together. And here this morning, verse 17, chapter 3, we're walking with others. Three different positions, but they're communicating the same truth in regard to discipleship. Unity togetherness in the fellowship of God's family. I want to look at three distinctions within this first verse, 17, that I wish to examine this morning, and I've put them in kind of a contrasting context. And you can see the contrast in each one of those as you follow along on your note sheet. To begin with, our personal journey is with others. Our sanctification is indeed an individual and personal journey, but we're to be joined with others. It seems like a contradiction. But this is what Paul has just done with his own testimony. I am reaching for the goal. And I want you there with me. You need to be there with me. And we see that in the very first verse, verse 17, when he says, brethren. Now we know when he uses that term, Paul is expressing his affections for this church. And we've talked again and again about the, the special unity that Paul enjoys with these believers. They love Paul. Paul loves them. And the depth of that love is seen again in this expression, brethren, 
Look out in chapter 4, verse 1. He says it again, beloved brethren. So when we see that term brethren, we know at once Paul is communicating his love, his affection for these believers and understanding that they love him as well. But what we don't want to miss in this expression is in the context of verse 17 that there is unity. He's declaring, I am one with you. I'm connected. I'm related by the blood of Christ. Not the blood of men, but by the blood of Christ. We are part of the family of God. We're brothers and sisters together. And our older brother, Jesus, he's made this so. He's caused us to be one. So when he says, brethren, in the context of verse 17, he's not only expressing his love, he's expressing his unity. We're part of one family here. God's family. And God's family needs to be moving together, forward, reaching for that goal of Christ-likeness. And this unity fits the context of what Paul is describing here. Notice that Paul immediately follows this first statement with the truth that others are on the same path. And he says, I want you to observe them. There's others that are walking along with me. Observe them. Why observe them? So that the Philippians would join with this progression. This is a unity issue. In addition, at the end of verse 17, Paul mentions the pattern of life that the church witnesses in us, he said, plural us. Now there are some that speculate, among scholars anyway, that Paul is just taking literary license here and he's saying us to refer to himself. Observe the pattern you find in me. But when he says us, he's understanding there are those around me, those with me that are standing with me. And it would be very much like me saying often when I'm preaching, we believe, we teach this. When I'm telling you I teach this, but I understand there's a body of other elders behind me or with me, alongside me, that would preach the very same thing. So sometimes I will say, we believe, we teach this at the church. And it may be that that's what Paul is doing here. But other scholars have speculated that Paul is referring to Timothy and Epaphroditus from chapter 2. Because these are men that were following the same example, the same pattern, and Paul has just used these two men in this letter. To show the church this is what it means to have the attitude of Christ in us. They're to be honored, such men. They're to be held in high regard. They're to be followed, observe them. Now whether or not these two men, Epaphroditus and Timothy, are the us that Paul is referring to here in verse 17 is not necessarily an essential point. Other words, Paul would have identified the us. But what I believe is essential that we see here is a picture of the church walking together on the same path. And again, I emphasize this because it is all too common for Christians to view their spiritual journey as an individual trek towards sanctification. I will manage my own growth. I will undertake my own maturity in Christ. Now to be sure, each of us should be purposed within our own hearts to walk on a path of personal sanctification. It's our obligation to oversee our own lives, our personal lives, before Christ that we're growing in Him. Paul has stated his own personal testimony. In verse 14, I am reaching, I'm pressing forward to that goal. 
But then he immediately follows it again in verse 15, doesn't he? You have the same attitude. And now in verse 17, he's saying, I want you to follow my example. I've told you this is my priority in life. You need to be here as well. And therefore, when you and I talk about progressive sanctification, let's not limit it to my own personal growth. Because we're to be growing together in the family of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is essential for us to understand these three verses, and even these five verses, that we're going to be studying together. And to this extent, there has to be this family relationship that is characteristic in us and how we live life, our priority in life, where we're going in life, how we view life. It's got to be in conformity to Christ. It's got to be by the counsel of His Word. That's why the psalmist wrote, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If you are in a church where the Word of God is not lighting the path for spiritual growth, you're in the wrong church. But if you are in a church and part of a congregation that is teaching and exhorting and counseling with the Word of God, you better not be found alone on a path. You better be joined with other believers. Because this is what discipleship means. We're walking this path together. Second, Note that this is about exalting Christ. It is not about promoting self. Paul is not declaring to the believers there in Philippi, in verse 17, that I'm an exceptional, I'm a superior Christian, therefore you better follow me, because he immediately follows that by saying, there are others with me in this journey. He's declared to them, this is where I'm going, it's what I'm reaching for, it's my goal. I'm heading for the prize of the upward call. And what is that call? To be conformed to the image of Christ. That's where I'm going. You need to be there with me. Others are with me. Observe them. What he's clearly telling the church is, this isn't about me being an exceptional, superior, mature Christian. And I noticed that this is a fascinating detail that he plugs into verse 17. Paul is say, not saying, I'm the leader of the pack. You think the apostle to the Gentiles would be saying, I'm the leader of the pack. All he's telling this church is, this is where I'm headed. This is my priority. Follow my example. There are others on this path. To observe here, as Paul commends, observe these ones that are with me. It means to fix their gaze on, to focus on. We might say, fix your sights on these ones. In other words, they're looking around the congregation for those that are passionate about sanctification, growing in Christ, becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. We're observing them so that we can follow after them. We can be joined with them in this journey. And in this sense, believers should follow other saints who are in pursuit of Christ. We should be observing, listening to other believers. And not going it on our own. A couple of us here this morning dealt with a professing believer that defied all biblical counsel by many biblical leaders in the church. And this particular individual refused to confess the sin that he was guilty of. And his response in one of his communications to us was that he was a follower of Christ and not a follower of men. In other words, 
he did not have to listen to others. While this sounded very spiritual to himself, it is a rejection of the pattern of discipleship that we find in the Word of God. We do need to be listening to each other. We do need to be following one another, providing we're going the way of Christ, providing we're exalting the Word of Christ. And I'm afraid this kind of attitude is not all that uncommon a response in biblical counsel that is being given in the church. And especially, I might add, in the American church, because we have this identity with liberty and freedom here in America. And we tend to think that our political system should operate that way within the church. And there's a kind of sense of autonomy that we run our lives by. I don't have to listen to you. And we don't like to be told what to do. But when the brother comes alongside us and says, you're living in sin, and this is what the word of God says, you had better listen to him. Because this is what discipleship is all about. And we protest, no, I must obey God rather than men. Thinking of Acts chapter 5 and Peter and so forth. But in such a case, following men would have put the apostles on a path contrary to Christ. But when it comes to saints who are following Christ and walking by His word, we most certainly are to be followers of men who are following Christ. Again, that's the heart of discipleship. We are to be followers of men who are following Christ. Paul is not boasting here of his superior sanctification. He's not proclaiming his own personal system of spiritual growth. Nor is he suggesting to the church that he is without fault. And the Philippians would have understood this immediately. You back up to verse 12 and 13. He's already confessed this. I haven't reached perfection yet. I'm still a sinner. I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived yet. The Philippians knew that Paul was not putting himself forward as a perfect saint of God. What Paul had just given testimony to in his own life is that he had put aside all of his past failures and self-achievements, that he was reaching forward to what lies ahead in spiritual growth. He was pressing ahead to lay hold of that higher calling to be like Jesus Christ. He wasn't there yet, but he said, I'm straining every muscle like an athlete running a race to gain that prize, which is being like Christ. And it's entirely appropriate that Paul calls others to follow him. You follow me. I'm not a perfect man, but I know where I'm going. I know my calling. We're not following other people's sins or failings, but we're following a pattern of progressive sanctification. And in the previous chapter, remember, the church was directed to regard others as more important than ourselves, to put the interests of others alongside the interests of self. And then Jesus Christ was given to us as that perfect example. Paul said, look at Jesus, who set aside his heavenly glories and took on the form of a slave to die on a cross for our sins. And then he gave us two men that exemplified that kind of self-sacrifice. Epaphroditus and Timothy. And he's giving those two men to the church to tell them, you follow such men. You regard such men with honor. And he rolls right into chapter 3 and he's saying the same thing here, isn't he? You follow after me because I'm pressing hard after the goal to be like the Son of God. 
we are to be followers of men who are following Christ. And I want to see a, a distinction here, or let the Word of God make a distinction. If you would join me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And look down at verse 6 through verse 9. Well, Paul writes to the church, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. What is that telling us? Don't follow people that call themselves Christian that are contrary to the word of God. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we did not have the right to do so, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. This is clear. We're not to follow men that are going the wrong direction, even if they call themselves believers. But we are to follow men and women in the church. They're going hard after Christ. And this is, I think, a statement that's a little bit difficult for us to take hold of. I'm not a follower of men. Because there's a little bit of that autonomy in all of us. I go my own way. I know my liberties. I know my rights. I know my freedoms. And again, that works great for an American governmental system. But it's not the system of Christ. It's not the government of his church. He wants all of us going on the same path. And we're looking to each other to be examples. This brings us to the third part of this 17th verse that I want us to consider. And again, it seems like a contradiction, but it's really not. All of us are to be leading, and yet all of us are to be following. I think this much is evident in verse 17. Paul is saying, I'm on this journey of progressive sanctification. I'm heading towards conformity to Christ. I want you to follow my example, but there are others here too. We're walking together. Join with us, observe us, see what's going on, and follow after all of us should strive to be examples for others to follow, and all of us should be following the lead of someone. The question here is, am I engaged in discipleship such that I am encouraged on my path of sanctification in my walk, and am I also encouraging others in their path? Am I engaged in progressive sanctification discipleship? Each of us should discern what the implications are here in verse 17. Paul does not set himself up as the pinnacle of spiritual admiration. He recognizes a pattern of spiritual growth in several other believers who are right there with him on this spiritual journey. He also admits to being an example himself for others to follow. And he challenges the church to lead or to look around for those who are leading others who are mature in their walk of faith and who will be an example to their walk of faith. Number one, in the body of Christ, there's always going to be someone who is spiritually ahead of others that can minister to our growth, at least in some area. They may not be able to, to help us in our growth and nurture us in every single area. 
one particular believer may be very mature in mercy and helps another very mature in teaching doctrine. Somebody may, may be mer- very mature in, in Christian love and showing us what it means to love one another. And what this implies, I believe, is that we're going to have many leaders in our life that are going to be encouraging our walk along this spiritual journey. It may not be one single individual, but there will always be those people in the church community that are more mature than me, at least in some area. And I'm to observe, I'm to look for, I'm to see that pattern, and I'm to follow after in that area of love or teaching or mercy or kindness. At the very same time, there will always be in the church community those that are less mature than I. And my life needs to be an example and a testimony to them that is encouraging them along. So all of us should be leading and all of us should be following. Again, it is at the heart of discipleship. Each of us should be striving, therefore, for personal holiness and growing in the richness of Christ's character, not only for our own sake and our own growth, but also to be an example to others. It is essential also that each of us are humble enough to admit, I'm not as far along as I should be in this area. But Bob over there is. Jane over there is. And I'm going to follow after the example I see in them. What this produces within the local church is a unity of our fellowship. We're bound together in this journey heading towards conformity to Christ, which is the goal of our salvation. It's the very reason that God saved us in the first place. And this brings us to verse 18 and 19, because in order for us to fully understand that, Paul then warns the church of the path you cannot be found on. You need to walk here, follow my example, be reaching for conformity to Christ, to looking and observing others that are mature and going that same direction, be bound to this path and to those ones. But, he says in verse 18 and 19, be warned of those that are going another direction. Look again at Philippians chapter 3, now at verse 18 and 19. Four. Many walk of whom I often told you, now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. The warning here in verse 18 and 19 is to keep us from walking with those that are going contrary to Christ. And you notice the expression there? They are enemies of the cross of Christ. That's rather extreme language. That's severe language. It's a severe warning. It's intended to be. Some of you know this about me, but back in the mid-80s, I had applied to the Washington State Patrol, and I went to their academy. They accepted me, I guess. That was back during their affirmative action when they could take shorter people because you remember the State Patrol, minimum six foot two. I didn't apply for that. So blessings on affirmative action. The state patrol needs the shorter models as well. But I went to the academy, and one of the instructors was, was telling us about coming on an accident scene. And you're finding all of the contents of vehicles, trucks, and stuff. And they're warning us, make sure you glove up before you go out and, and handle those scenes and clear the road. 
And they told a story about one state trooper that came upon an accident scene where five-gallon buckets were all over the highway, and he instinctively reached down and grabbed hold of one, not realizing those buckets were containing a toxic element. And the minute he touched that handle, it absorbed this toxic element into his skin, and it paralyzed him for the rest of his life. That's a severe warning, isn't it? That gets your attention. And here's how many years later, I still remember that one story, and yet I don't even remember the class that I was in or the instructor, but that story I remember. Paul is alerting the church to a very real danger in regard to our spiritual sanctification. These are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is deeply moved by this threat. You see it there in verse 18. And he says, I've warned you again and again. This is a subject that Paul has pounded upon the church. Again and again, they're probably tired. Oh, Paul, you've talked about this before. Get off this. Let's move on. I get it. But you see his passion here, don't you? He's emotionally captured by this church. He has a deep heart for these believers. And so he gives to them a severe warning. And it says, even as he's writing this letter, he's weeping at the threat of these enemies of the cross to the church. Paul expresses his concern for the church that they keep their focus fixed on godly examples rather than the allurement of the ungodly. And in the context of this passage, one reason for the placement of this warning here is that there will be in this world the allurement of those who walk contrary to Christ The rest of the world is going another direction and it will have a lure to us. It will have an enticement to us. It will look attractive to us. You know the old expression, evil loves company? Paul is telling us holiness loves company too. That's why verse 17 is followed by verse 18. You observe those who are walking towards Christ because for this reason there are enemies of the cross. And he says, many are those who are walking there. What is being highlighted here in verse 17 and 18 are two paths. And you only find in the Word of God two paths. And we're going to look at that in just a moment so you can begin turning to Matthew chapter 7. But there is strength to be found in numbers here. And that's why Paul is saying, follow others, find yourself in the pattern of the faithful, be part of the company of God's saints. Be joined together here in what's going on in this discipleship movement because if you start to break fellowship, if you become weak in this discipleship movement, Paul is saying, let me tell you, the lore of the world is strong. And friends, we see this in our young people time and again, don't we? The entrapment, the enticement of the many out there is strong. And you can see why Paul is shedding tears over this. And what I believe that Paul is doing here is that he's expressing the same church growth movement that Jesus Christ did in Matthew chapter 7. Look at that passage from the the Sermon of Christ. Matthew 7 verse 13 and 14. And again, this is Christ's version of the church growth movement. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are, what, many who enter through it. 
For the gate is small, and the, ne- and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find that. You know, there have been down through church history moments of evangelism that have been kind of explosive. Pentecost in Jerusalem was one of those examples. But I think even our missionaries could tell us this morning, for the most part, evangelism sees the few. You can be out on the field or in this community for years preaching the gospel, and you're only going to see the few. That's the church growth movement of Jesus Christ. There is a pathway over here that leads to glory. It's narrow, and the end gate is very small. And you're only going to find a couple of people on that path. Ours is the the dirt trail. And over there is the superhighway. It's very broad. Everybody's going there. And Paul is telling the Philippians, be careful here. Because that looks very attractive. And we mustn't assume that either Jesus or Paul are trying to be pessimistic here. If anything, they're trying to encourage the church. If you find yourself on this skinny dirt path, and there's only a couple of people around you, you're on the right road. Don't look over there, because that's the wrong path. And this is what Paul is describing towards the believers. And he's passionate about it. He's concerned for this church. He's shedding tears. He's repeating himself again and again, because he knows the trap that even Christians can fall into. And so he's going to talk now about the other path. Verse 17 is the path to conformity to Christ. But he said, I want to talk about the path where many are found and what that looks like. Consider with me the importance of this warning, beginning with the identity of these gospel enemies. As we consider the warning that Paul is giving to the church here in verse 18 and 19, we're again confronted with the question, who is Paul talking about? And again, scholars seem to disagree. Some believe that many in the church had defected from the faith and were living worldly lives. If they were once part of the church, it means that they had one time professed themselves to be followers of Christ, but later they had fallen away. These then would be false believers. Other scholars have argued in the context of chapter 3 and backing up to the beginning of the chapter, that what Paul is addressing with these enemies of the cross is false teachers, the Judaizers, and we can throw in the Jewish element as well. Those that were preaching contrary to Christ, the false teachers that had entered into the church. And you look back at verse 2 of chapter 3, you can kind of see that context, where Paul refers to them as dogs, evil workers, and the false circumcision. Again, strong language. They truly would be enemies of the cross of Christ. James Boyce, although he may not agree that these enemies of the cross were once part or members of the church, he adds that this description that we're going to see in verse 18 and 19 is a description of every single one of us prior to regeneration. This is a valid point. It's a description of what we all were when we were enemies of God. Before we were brought to regeneration, by the Spirit of Christ. Regardless of who these enemies were in relation to the church, the characteristics of being an enemy of the cross applied to every one of us prior to coming to faith in Christ. And in this view, I think we are all cautioned not to draw back 
to those desires of the old sin nature. The life that we came out of. And that's why Paul said in this chapter, those things that I was proud of before, that self-righteousness of being such a Hebrew of Hebrews, I've thrown them to the side. They're behind me now. And I'm striving forward. I have to appreciate the position of William Hendrickson. He understands that these enemies identified here are many. And he said they cannot then constitute the members, former members of the church, because otherwise Paul would not speak of the Philippian congregation in such glowing terms. And that makes sense. If a large contingent of the membership fell away and rejected Christ, the tone of this letter to Philippians would be so much different. And if this is the case, then the warning that Paul gives to the church involves the influence of those that are outside the church in the world around us. At the beginning of chapter 3, adding to this, we are warned about those false teachers that have come into the church and are contrary to Christ. So we have those outside that are enemies of the cross. We have those coming inside that are enemies of the cross. And in addition to that, we all were once enemies of the cross. An enemy of the cross is going to be an enemy to our growth. And that's what Paul is warning the church of. We must be witness for the gospel to the world around us, but we must not walk after them. We must love our enemies and love the world enough to preach Christ to them, but we must not walk with them. We cannot be on their superhighway. And this brings us to our second part, the concern over gospel enemies. It would not matter to Paul if he's referring to the Judaizers, the Jews, or those who defected from the faith, or just very worldly people. Each of these constitute an enemy of the cross of Christ. And whatever the nature of these people, Paul is deeply concerned for the church that they not be drawn away by the influence of those that oppose the gospel. And this is a discussion that he's had before with the church. And it seems that Paul is even tearing up as he's writing this part of his letter. He's deeply concerned. His heart of affection is bound to these dear Philippians. And what follows in verse 19 is a description that characterizes the opposition to Christ in this group. And this description serves as a practical warning to the church then and today of that which is a danger to our forward progress in Christ, our sanctification. In fact, verse 19 very accurately describes, I believe, our present culture. In this description, Paul names that which is a constant threat to our souls. And if we're honest with ourselves, the heart is fickle. And you know that we're easily enticed, especially when the influence is great when there are many walking that opposing path. I think there's another application found in this verse that we do not want to miss. And that is that we need to understand that a true conversion experience will do just that. It will convert. What we see witnessed in the scriptures are only two paths. We're either on this path or we're on that path. There's no third there's no neutral territory. There's no medium between the highways where we can park and rest, in other words. A true conversion experience will convert us. In other words, we will be on the path of progressive sanctification. There's all too often in our culture today those who would claim 
the eternal security of being called Christian, but who also continue to live as they have always lived. They embrace the gospel so far as they believe it saves them, but they have little interest in sanctification or growing or becoming more like Christ or following after the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would say, as many of you understand, there's far too much antinomianism in the church today. There's far too many that are promoting Christian liberty as something that frees us to indulge the flesh. There's an overemphasis and even a perversion of grace today, suggesting that we're just extending grace as if obedience to the laws of God no longer matters. Well, it certainly matters to Christ. We need to understand that much. But verse 19 shows the church today is a very clear picture of who will be walking on the pathway of enemies to Christ regardless of their profession of faith. And we are to note this path well. And this brings us to the description. Be careful to observe this description here. Verse 19 states the details of these ones that are the enemy of the cross. This may not be comprehensive, but look at these general principles beginning with and an understanding of that these enemies of the cross are destined for hell. They're destined for judgment. Their end is destruction. No good thing is going to come in eternity for them. Look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 because Paul makes this distinction so clearly in this letter to Thessalonica. The final destructive end is declared for all who are contrary to God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6 through the verse 10. Paul writes, For after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those, um, to you who are afflicted, and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Apparently, obedience is important to God. Verse 9, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Verse 10, when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled about at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. What Paul is writing here is that there's a clear distinction between this path and that path. And the superhighway where many are following, or many are walking on, its end is destruction. Judgment awaits them. And when we think of judgment, we know that God will be one day Christ seated on his great white throne. And all will be gathered in his presence. And he will judge their deeds. And not a single deed by the world will be found suitable or fit for him. And man will be condemned for every single one of them. We tend to think of those deeds as well, the really evil, the really bad things, like murder and rape and those kinds of thievery kind of stuff. Like Hitler, he's the worst of the villains, right? We think of those deeds in that context. But I want to take us to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 because there's a part that we don't often consider here as we look at the enticement of those that are on that path that is heading towards destruction. In 2 Corinthians, notice how Paul puts this. He's describing those that are very religious. Verse 13, 
false apostles, deceitful workers within the church community, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. But look at verse 15. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Now, what deeds are we talking about? Deeds of righteousness in the name of religion. Deeds of man's good works, his humanitarian efforts, all done outside of the gospel. All done while rejecting the gospel. Those kind of deeds that are dressed up in a disguise so they look very religious, they look very righteous to us. They do some helpful thing, but those deeds are going to be judged. And those men will be found guilty. And what is their end? Destruction. Because their deeds fall short of the glory of God. The righteous deeds of false religion will not be judged any differently then than the overtly wicked things of worldly men around us. Those Christ regards as enemy of the cross will face a destructive end that is final and it is irrevocable. And he will execute judgment against all their wicked deeds. Then we come to the second characteristic. And I refer to them as belly worshipers. But this characteristic identifies those that serve the God of their belly, their intestines, their guts, their stomach, or we might say the heart. And the New American Standard is right to correctly identify these as men's appetites. What comes to mind immediately, almost amusingly, is that God Buddha, that false God Buddha, You've seen the picture, haven't you? You've seen his belly? It's this immensely swollen belly. This is a God of gluttony. And these people are to worship that. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. The people that are driven by their own sensual appetites, greed, gluttony, sexual perversions. They give to themselves what their hearts desire. This is characteristic of the world that is on the path to destruction. And Paul is warning the church because we are all drawn by our bellies, by our intense desire to please self rather than to please Christ. We must be warned of this because we're all prone to please self. And when many others around us are enjoying the goodness of those self-appetites, it can be very appealing to us. And it can draw many away. And again, we lose far too many of our young people to this very thing. They lack a maturity in self-discipline. And they're at the peak of their desires. But the older ones are not exempt either. We may just differ on what entices our hearts. But this is a warning to the church. There are a lot of people going this direction. They're following after their own appetites. Don't be lured away. The third is that of shameful glory. And I don't think there is anything characteristic of people on the path of destruction that more parallels America today than this. It's the idea that the very things that are shameful in the eyes of God, man is glorying in. It's why we have a gay pride day. No doubt the qualities that Paul is identifying here 
were evident in his day as they are in our day. They just may have a little different flavor, a little different dressing. But I can think of few times in our nation's history when people were more proud of what they're doing that is shameful in the eyes of God. How do we explain the exalting of a woman's right to kill her unborn baby? And if you disagree with that, you're a shameful creature to despise women's rights. And yet in the eyes of God, that child in the womb is precious to him. And it's a glory to man that we have the right to kill that child. And we go on from there. Sexual practices and ideologies abound today with some of the most perverse and twisted thinking I think that we've ever seen in our nation. And they're declared as the most precious of human rights. And any who oppose this thinking are bigots, they're hateful, they're accused of being like Nazis. Little regard is given today that one day all men are going to stand before the judgment of Christ. And they're going to give account for these deeds. We may see this as the culture around us, but the reason that we are warned here of those who walk in this way is so that we again do not join with them. That which leads us away from the goal is a threat to our growth. And you and I here today are probably pretty solid in our thinking on some of these perversions. But open your eyes and look at what's becoming of the church in America and how they're rushing to embrace what the world is doing, what the many are doing that is shameful in the eyes of God. Number four, earthly minds. This fourth characteristic of gospel enemies has set their minds on the things of this world. And that was where read to us in Colossians 3 this morning. Verse 2, set your minds on the things above, not on the things of this earth. Well, to some degree, we have to think about the things of this world, right? Like the world, we've got jobs, we have to deal with money, we have houses to pay for and cars to maintain, we have careers, we have to put money in the savings account. We deal with a lot of the same things that the world does. But Paul has something else in mind here because if you go on in Colossians 3 and verse 5 and verse 8, we say that these things of the mind speak of immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, greed, things that amount to idolatry. Verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander. It's what's going on in the heart as we deal with these things of the world. We all have to deal with money. But we're not to be consumed with love for money or greed or power. Setting our minds on either heaven and earth is descriptive of what we set our affections on, what we strive for, what our attitude is toward those things. And do those things take our vision off the heavenly path, our sanctification. But the things of this world become more important to us than our together sanctification as we're reaching for the prize that should be ours. There are things of this earth that we need to deal with to be sure. But Paul cautions the church here, be careful. Don't let your heart be drawn sinfully away to these things. And I've just got to close here this morning because we're running out of time. But I want to bring three kind of summary points to your attention because these three verses are very important. They're critical to our understanding of discipleship and our growth as believers, our together growth as a church. Our sanctification. It is the priority. It is to be the priority of our life. Therefore, observe from our text, the believer's walk gives the necessary evidence that confirms our profession of faith. 
The believer's walk gives the necessary evidence that confirms our profession of faith. It's interesting that the validity of a person being Christian today seems to rest on one's profession of faith. Did you pray the prayer? Did you pray the prayer? If you prayed the prayer, you're saved. Well, not according to Scripture. The evidence of your salvation is going to be seen in a life of sanctification. It is certain that we cannot be Christian without a true biblical profession of the gospel. But to merely claim to be Christian does not validate the genuineness of that person's faith. The people of this world are found on only one of two paths here. Christians will be found on the path or the road that is conforming to Christ. If you're not on that path, you don't belong to Christ. No matter what you've professed or what prayer you've prayed, are you on the path that is conforming you to Christ? Second, the two paths of Scripture is a warning to the church today against compromise. It is a warning today against compromise. We're either on this path or the other path. There's no in-between area. And I think we've often considered that, well, I'm a Christian, I've done things in the past that are profitable, I've grown to this level of maturity, and I've been a little distracted with other things, and I can kind of plateau out here. And I tend to think of this walk to be like us sitting in a rowboat and rowing. But we're rowing upstream. We're making progress because we're straining. We're working hard. We're pushing against the current of the world. But what happens when you stop rowing? You go backwards. You drift back. You fall back. And you begin to take on the things of the world that we've just been warned to stay off of. Stay out of this path. The warning for the church here in verse 19 is to keep away from spiritual compromise. Anything that's going to take us away from that glorious priority, conformity to Christ. That's got to be our passion. That's got to be our love. If money, jobs, the world, your family, your career, your house, whatever it is, have taken you off of that priority, stop now. And join with others. Look around. Observe. Follow after the path of those that are striving for Christ. We are to fix our mind on the things above and not on the things of the world and there's no in-between. Number three, the church fellowship must include spiritual, emotional, and physical unity. This puts meat, I think, on the bones of our understanding of being united in our fellowship as a church congregation. Simply showing up on Sunday morning does not mean that we are unified in our Christian fellowship. Paul clearly shows in this text our need for being spiritually united together, heading the same spiritual direction, but he also teaches the unity of our affections in our union together as he weeps over his brethren these ones that he's loved, that he's bound together with by the blood of Christ. Emotionally united with the church means that we're tender-hearted, kind, gentle, respectful. We weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Our hearts and affections are joined together. And for this kind of spiritual and emotional unity to be present, brothers and sisters, we've got to be physically present. There has to be some priority to be connected physically. And it's why Hebrews 10 cautions us. Don't neglect assembling yourselves together. Love and good deeds are taught 
in our togetherness. And fortunately, today we have the ability to speak on any number of venues. Telephone, internet, emails, text. We can stay connected physically. Paul, he was separated a bit. He had to write a letter. We have so much more going for us to help maintain our physical connection. But to follow the example of others necessarily implies that in some measure we are physically connected to the extent that we can benefit from the pattern of others. We're looking, we're observing, we're following after. You can't do that if you're physically separated. Or you keep yourself separated. We have to be together physically, emotionally, if we're going to see any spiritual unity here as well. This, again, is the doctrine of discipleship. And it lets us know that discipleship may not be limited to just biblical instruction or counsel or teaching. It's also going to include our conduct, how we live our lives in front of each other, the testimony of our behavior, our speech, our language, even as Colossians 3 cautioned, living as examples, observing these examples, exists within biblical fellowship. It builds the kind of unity that finds us walking together with Christ. And friends, if you're a believer here this morning, the glory of this whole discussion is that we're conforming to the image of God's Son. And that has got to be precious to us this morning. It's got to be the passion of our heart. If something has distracted you from that, appeal to the Spirit of the living God that He ignite the flames of that desire and that love for Jesus Christ to want to be like Him. And unity is going to bring us there. Let's pray that God does that with Summit Park. Join me. Father, thank you for loving your church enough to take a bunch of rebellious, wayward, fickle people to bring us together under the bounds of your strength and grace to call us your very own by cleaning us up with the blood of your own Son and then enduring with us day by day to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. I praise you that the word says that the work you have started in me, you will complete. Because, Father, I fear that if it was left up to my persistence, it would never get done. Would you, Father, stir within our hearts the beauty and the glory of looking like Jesus? Give us a vision of his glory and majesty. Give us a hunger and a passion in our hearts to be like him and to be together with others that want to be like him. Give us a passion for discipleship, sanctification, growth, and unity. We need so much of these things in the church today. And we pray this for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen.